Good morning, everybody. How are you today? Good, good. It's so good to see you. Uh, for women who are wanting to join the, uh, the Women's Midweek Bible Study and do the Book of James, um, fair warning, your life is probably going to get messed up by the Book of James. Uh, a few years ago, Steve and I, this was back before we did the, the transition, before I was the, the pastor here and Steve was still pastoring, and we decided we were going to do the Book of James as a sermon series because everybody was too comfortable. And, um, uh, and every week, you know, Steve, depending on who was preaching, one of us would go to the other and say, why did you give me this text? I'm going to offend everybody. And... Um, and then it was great. We had a good time. So women, go to this. It's going to be a really good time. Today, we are going to be wrapping up what we've been doing for the last couple of weeks. We're in, uh, at the end of a short three-week sort of mini-series where we're just talking about some of the foundational theology that informs everything that we do and believe here at the Vineyard, uh, approximately everything that we do and believe here. Um, because, you know, over the course of the last couple of years, there, there have been a number of new people who have joined the church, and um, we, all, we all come into church with sort of different assumptions of what the Bible says, of what the gospel is, and how we live out the gospel together. And so um, we feel like it's important from time to time to just sort of bring some clarity as to, like, what is central to us as God's people here at Vancouver Vineyard Church. So on the first week, we did a sweeping overview of Genesis to Revelation about sort of what did the Bible teach about heaven and earth. And then last week, we really dug into the story of God's kingdom uh, that has come in Jesus. How many of you guys liked that? I need the affirmation. Uh, yeah, it was good. <laughs> and then today, what we're going to do is we're going to close this out by looking at what happens right after Jesus ascends into heaven and how pe the people of God are, are empowered and sent out to continue Jesus' work in our world today. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be reading tons of scripture today. Don't worry about keeping up with all of them, but it's good to take a look at some of them um, as we go. So when Jesus first burst onto the scene, we talked about in, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus came with an announcement. He said, the time has come, or the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. And that this was, in a sense, the summary statement of what Jesus preached when he preached the gospel. The kingdom of God is here, repent, believe the good news. But in Luke chapter 4, we see a more detailed account of Jesus' announcement of his manifesto, which came actually from the writings of the prophet Isaiah. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, in a place called Nazareth, which was Jesus' own hometown, he went on the Sabbath day to the synagogue, which was likely his own you know, hometown church, the church that he grew up in. And he opens the scroll of Isaiah and reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jesus's manifesto. This is what he came to do. This is the summary statement of his ministry on earth. And what better job description than that? 
You see, the vision for Jesus' life wasn't to just sort of appear, try to stay holy until it was time to go to the cross so that he could die for the forgiveness of sins. Though, of course, we rejoice that that is a central component of the gospel. But the the, the manifesto of Jesus goes beyond that, and it's right here. He was empowered by the Spirit, and he says, the Spirit of God has come upon me and anointed me for a purpose. Jesus says that the Spirit of the Lord has come upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, to announce freedom to those who are in bondage, to physically heal the blind and everyone else, to deliver those who are oppressed by the evil one, and to announce the kingdom of God, the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. And that is exactly what he did. And from Matthew all the way through to the, to the Gospel of John, we see story after story of this repeated theme over and over again. Jesus announcing the good news of the kingdom and him demonstrating what the good news of the kingdom does in real lives right in front of him. Look at what we read in Matthew chapter 4. It says, And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Say every. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick. Say all the sick. Those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Notice that all of them. Every single one of them, every disease, there was no disease that could stand before him, and there was no person who he wouldn't touch and heal. He announced this good news to everyone. And this is the good news that we still experience today, that we all have a story of the moment when Jesus burst in on the scene of our lives. In this room, across this room, there are stories, countless stories, of Jesus coming to announce good news to us, to set us free from bondage, from afflictions and addictions, from demonic thought patterns and false identities that have been spoken over us by different people in authority in our lives, from parents and teachers and exes, things that linger with us for a long time. He comes and he, he, he heals our bodies and our marriages and our relationships, and he announces a future of hope and joy and life in God to those who are hopeless and who feel like there is nothing yet on the other side for them. This is what Jesus' kingdom looks like, and it still looks like this today in our lives. He forgives sin. He heals bodies. He restores what's been broken and separated by sin, and he does it all with his own words and with a touch of his own hand. That, if you're wondering what the gospel is, that is the gospel. That is the good news. He has come to forgive and heal and restore and empower and recreate you. And he's doing it for the entire creation. So here's the thing. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus could, uh, there, there was a limit, right? He could only be in one place and at one time. And the healing of the world would require Jesus to be much more accessible than that. It, it's, it would require way more than what he alone could handle. So Jesus, he looks around and he finds a few young men to help him with his manifesto. And his manifesto becomes their mandate. If you flip over to Matthew chapter 10, Jesus, after Jesus announces that all authority was his, he then extends it to 12 others. We read in verse 1, And he called to him his 12 disciples 
And he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then skip all the way down to verse 7. He's giving these disciples this charge. He says, and proclaim as you go, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You have received without paying, give without pay. And in this moment, the manifesto of Jesus becomes the mandate of his disciples. He says, the exact same marching orders that I came, I'm sending you out to do the same thing, okay? This isn't just for me to do by myself. I'm actually recreating a whole new way, and I'm depending on you to carry it forward. And here's the thing. It's not the, it is the authority of Jesus that these disciples carry, not their own. He doesn't say, go and be authoritative. He says, I am giving you my authority to go and do the same things that I'm doing. They don't heal the sick. Jesus heals the sick. This is really good news because it's not their job and it's not our job to, be, to, to go and heal everyone. It's our job simply to be brave enough to obey and trust that the power of Jesus is going to touch other people. Their responsibility was simply to do what he said and then leave the results in his hands. So Jesus goes from doing it himself to multiplying it out to 12 more guys. Now flip over to Luke chapter 10. We've seen how Jesus announces his manifesto in Luke 4, that he's been empowered for a purpose. Then in Matthew 10, Jesus expands it to 12 other guys to learn uh, from him, to be with him, and in being with him, to become like him, and then therefore to go and do the same stuff that he did. And then in Luke chapter 10, we see Jesus needing to recruit more help and appointing and sending 72 others. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. They were meant to go prepare the way for Jesus to come and do his ministry. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are still too few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then look at verse 9. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Notice at every point and every time that when the, the sick are healed, the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom is also given. Those things are linked together. It's meant to point to the reality that these things are connected. And we see here the same instructions are given to a different group of people. And this group goes out carrying the authority of Jesus and living out the manifesto of Jesus as their mandate. And then look at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And this is incredible. Jesus goes from doing ministry by himself to sparking a movement, a kingdom movement, empowering others to do what he did with the same power that he received. You see, the spirit of the sovereign Lord was upon him and had anointed him, and that same spirit was now being given to 12 others and then 72 others and anointing them to carry out the same ministry, anointing them to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, healing for the suffering and doing the stuff of the kingdom of God. 
And this is awesome. It's transforming, radically transforming an entire region in the Near East. Everyone is astonished at what Jesus and his crew of disciples were doing. They're amazed at his words. He's turning the law, the Torah, upside down with new interpretations that reflect the heart of the Father. He's doing these miracles, these creative miracles. He's providing food for those who are hungry. He's giving forgiveness to the sinners, and he's extending kindness to those who are outcast. And then we see Jesus sort of like take it to the whole next level in John 14. He makes this really strange statement the night before he goes to the cross. He's with his close friends, his 12 disciples, and he says this. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Did anybody's brain just melt out of their ears at the very idea of that? This is an incredible statement. Jesus actually prophesied that somehow his followers would do greater works than what he had been doing while he was on the earth. That somehow the departure of Jesus was going to mean something even better than his coming. Now, there is some debate about what Jesus means by this phrase, greater works. Like, is he talking, is this qualitative or is this quantitative? Like, would we do more impressive things than what Jesus did? Like, you know, he was the warm-up act and we're going to really take it to the next level? Or was, he, or was he simply saying that we would, might do some less impressive things, but there would be millions more of us, so it would spread wider and farther uh, across the world? In either way, one thing that we can be sure of is that greater does not mean not greater. <laughs> and that's a big deal. And so the way that Jesus' people would expand his kingdom ministry was the same exact way that he did. Not by becoming deity in flesh, but by being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to Acts 1. This is right before Jesus departs to go be with the Father. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Say baptized. We're getting a little Pentecostal today, aren't we? It's a little, little different, isn't it? We're dancing up front, and now I'm making you repeat stuff. Come on! <laughs> then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The disciples are looking at the resurrected Christ, and they ask this question that has been burning in their hearts for three years now. Are you now finally going to establish this kingdom that you have been talking about? And here is Jesus' response. He says, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And the answer to this question that had been plaguing the disciples for years, the question about the coming of the kingdom, the answer is the empowered church living out the mandate of Jesus. 
Let me take an aside here real quick. This, this is really profound. Like, this is something that has shaken me for the last few days as I have been praying through it. If you are a Christian and you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you and you're saying to yourself, how long, Lord? And you're longing for the kingdom and you're saying, when is he going to make all things new? And things are not right as they are. Jesus, when are you going to fix this thing? He would look right back at you and say, you have everything you need to go do the very things that I did. Now go do it. And that has made me tremble. And also it lights a fire in my belly. It gives me agency. It gives me something to do. Because he says, the kingdom, yeah, I'm with you. Let's go. The workers are few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers. As Jesus was about to ascend to the Father, he instructs his disciples, wait for the promise of the Father that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, this word baptize, it comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to dip, to plunge, to sink, to immerse, to soak, to submerge. It, it actually refers to a common practice in the ancient world of dipping a piece of cloth in dye. And when you dip the whole piece of cloth in the dye, it completely changes the nature of the cloth. And this is the image that Jesus used to describe what our experience of the Holy Spirit is meant to be. The ministry of Jesus is to plunge, to immerse, to soak believers in the person, in the presence, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when this happens, the nature of our lives is meant to be transformed. Our desires, our power, our vision, our character, it's all affected by being soaked, immersed, plunged in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus prophesied that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, when you're immersed in him, that in that moment you would receive power, and that this power would propel you out into the world to be his witnesses everywhere you go. So Jesus ends Acts chapter 1 by saying, wait, this is going to happen. And then they're all like, great. They get to work waiting. And then we turn over to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. The early followers of Jesus, after he ascended, they waited in an upper room, and what they were doing that whole time was praying and worshiping, and crying out to God that they would receive this promise, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then suddenly, early in the morning, something like a rushing wind filled the room where they were at, and they were immersed, filled, baptized with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the praises of God in other languages. And this experience bore immediate fruit in the church. That very first day, a, a crowd gathered to see the spectacle of what was happening and the power of God. And Peter gets up and he preaches, uh, preaches 
to this large crowd about the good news of Jesus and his kingdom, the forgiveness of sins, and the announcement that he is making all things new. And we see that in this one morning, 3,000 people are added to the church. I mean, talk about revival. This was a room that had the same number of people as what's probably in this room right now, just waiting just trusting that God wanted to pour out his spirit. And in one day, this group right here saw 3,000 people saved. That is amazing. And we see this church that is empowered by the spirit go on to change the world by living a radically new way, the way of the kingdom. We see at the end of Acts 2, this is what is written. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day by day by day those who were being saved. See, for the early church, Pentecost wasn't a one-time occurrence, but was actually an ongoing reality. From town to town and region to region, early believers would experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't just reserved for the small group of people in Jerusalem. No, we see in Acts chapter 8 that the same thing happened in Samaria among the hated like enemies of, of, of Israel. Um, where new believers are suddenly immersed, plunged, dipped in the Holy Spirit and receive the power of God to prophesy and speak in other languages. And then we see again in Acts chapter 10, Peter goes and preaches to a group of Gentiles who were considered to be way out of bounds, outside the covenant promises of God, that they are enfolded in, they're brought in, and suddenly the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they do the same thing. They praise God, they speak in other languages, and they prophesy. And we see in Acts chapter 4, the gathered, spirit-filled church, they're having a prayer meeting because, um, they, because Peter had just been put in jail and then miraculously released. And they get so excited, they, they have a prayer meeting to pray for more boldness. And as they were praying, this is what happens. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. As they were praying, the power of God was so manifest that the building began to vibrate. It began to shake and tremor. The church is living in ongoing Pentecost. They had the incredible experience of Acts chapter 2. And then again, while they were praying, we read that once again, they were filled with the Spirit, which begs a little bit of a question. It's like, well, wait a minute. If they already received the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, then what in the world is happening in Acts 4? Why do they need it again? I thought they already had it. As I said, uh, you know, if, if you've been around church for very long, you'll know that there's a debate around the issues of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. As soon as I say the word baptism of the Holy Spirit, the room starts to feel a little bit tense and kind of get divided because we all have different assumptions about what that means. Now, in classic Pentecostalism, the view is that when you are saved, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit, but you need what's called a second blessing, a second experience where you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, and that's what sort of like makes you into churchman, Christian 2.0, and um, it's evidenced by the speaking of tongues. 
This is a view that's really common among Pentecostal denominations like the Assemblies of God, who I have immense and dear affection for. It's the tradition that I grew up in. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have what's called cessationism, which is the belief that all of the gifts and the manifestations of the Spirit ceased once the canon of Scripture was closed because we now don't need the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. We have the Bible. Um, and so there's a high view of the scriptures among cessationists. And in this view, every believer gets the Holy Spirit when they're saved, but he doesn't really do anything miraculous in us or through us anymore because we have the Bible. It's a tired joke, but the functional trinity among cessationists is Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Now, the problem with having such an affection for the Holy Bible that leads you into cessationism is that the Bible doesn't teach cessationism. <laughs> I'm sorry like, if you're offended by that, but I just don't see it. Here at Vancouver Vineyard, we certainly do not hold to a cessationist view, and by far most biblical scholars would not affirm that view. But we also don't hold to a classic Pentecostal view either, with the emphasis on a second blessing. What we see the Bible teaching is that we are called to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit the day that you are saved, but you need to be filled again and again and again. You need to have the experience of the Spirit's power. I love how Bishop David Pitches says it. He says, yes, I believe in the second blessing. It comes after the first and before the third. Now, through the New Testament, we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit over and over again. In Ephesians chapter 5, we read, And do not get drunk with wine. We could preach that another time, too. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk on alcohol. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, in Greek, this, this, the phrasing of this sentence is actually really clunky, and it literally could be translated, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit, or go on being filled with the Spirit. It's almost like we leak, or we need to be constantly topped off again and again, need to be poured into each day. And so when Paul is saying, uh, what Paul is saying uh, here in Ephesians 5 is that in both instances, we are coming under the influence of an external power. On one hand, you could be influenced by wine, which numbs you and makes you sloppy and you lose control. But on the other hand, rather, we are to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit, with the power and presence of God. And it does the opposite. Instead of numbing us, the Holy Spirit makes us more alive, more aware, more acutely, you know, paying attention to things beyond what we're seeing in the natural into the Spirit. It's not just a second blessing, it's an ongoing reliance on the experience of being filled with the power of God. And we are called to grow in our experience of God. We are called to expand our faith and to deepen our intimacy and to grow in power. We are called to hunger for God more and more and more. And this is the paradox, the irony of the Christian life is that the more years you give to hungering after God, the hungrier and hungrier you become that his filling somehow gives us more capacity to want even more and even more and even more. Now, if you're like me, I'm sure you've felt from time to time the disconnect between what you read in the book of Acts and what you experience in your day-to-day -day life. Like, if I have the same thing that these earlier, early followers of Jesus had, why do I not see what they saw? 
And so you led to conclude that either God gave them more of what he's given me, or I have failed to avail myself of what he has given me. And that's a real struggle. It's a real paradox that we see here in the Bible. And I actually think that God invites us into that struggle. I don't think he gives us easy answers. But one thing that I feel confident of is that the, the offer of the Holy Spirit in our lives is an ongoing offer. There's never like a fork in the road where he says, do you want it or do you not want it? And you chose wrong and therefore you live a powerless life. It's on offer for us every single morning to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can go out and do the same stuff Jesus did. He calls us. He commands us. He invites us to be immersed in the Spirit. I love how Simon Ponzinby describes it uh, in his book, More. He says, speaking of the immersion of the Spirit, he says, it is, rather, a constantly repeatable, deepening experience of God's Spirit who brings greater revelation of the person and work of Christ, a blazing love for Christ, a greater and more effective empowering witness to Christ, and a transforming conformity to the character of Christ. The immersion of the Spirit is a constantly repeatable, deepening experience of God's power. And this, I think, is what the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians 3, where he says that we are called to be filled with all the fullness of God. Look at what Paul prays for the church. For you and me, he prays this. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Look at this. That you may be filled to all the fullness of God. What a crazy statement that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Not that you would be filled to your limited capacity, but that the fullness of God would fill you, immerse you, wash over you, and flow from you. So the question before us this morning is, do we believe that there's really more for us? Do we really believe that God has more for us than giving us a ticket to heaven and giving us a little bit more moral life while we wait to go there? Are we thirsty for more of God's presence and power in our lives? Have we grown complacent and accepted the status quo? Or do we actually want more? There's a story uh, often told in, in vineyard circles about the guy who led the vineyard movement back in the 80s and 90s. We've referenced him a few times in the last few weeks. This guy, John Wimber. Um, John Wimber came to faith when he was 29 years old in Southern California back in the 1970s. And he somehow lived his whole life up to that point with basically no exposure to the Christian faith. And then he met Jesus at this home Bible study. So everything was totally new to him. The Bible was totally new to him. Church was new. Everything was new to him. Um, and so after coming to faith, he was told that he needed to read the Bible and start going to church. The same things that you all were probably told at some point to do, right? You're here. So, 
So he started devouring the Bible day after day, and he started attending church. And the first Sunday at church, they sat in the back, they sang some hymns, they heard a passionless sermon, and then it was over. And the next week, they came back to church because that's what Christians do. You read the Bible, you go to church, and week after week, he just kept doing the same thing, waiting for something to happen. And the problem for Wimber is that as he read the Bible and went to church, he noticed a gap. And there seemed to be a disconnect between what the Bible said and what they were actually experiencing at church. So one Sunday, he arrived at the church, and he was greeted by one of the elders. And he said, I have a question. When do we get to do the stuff? And the elder looked at him and said, what do you mean? And John said, you know, the stuff, the, the, the stuff that's in here, you know, the stuff that Jesus did, casting out demons, healing the sick. When do we get to do that stuff? And the elder said, we don't do that anymore. You don't? Then what do you do? And the elder said, oh, what we did this morning. We sing some hymns and we listen to a sermon. And John looks at this elder and said, I gave up drugs for that? Some of you may have had the same question. This is the most resonant quote of the morning for you. We want to be a church that is increasingly doing the stuff. Like, yes, we admit that we are not seeing the power of God manifest in our church the way that we want to, but we do not use that as an excuse for just living passionless lives. We want more. We have no interest in being merely a morality club. We want to experience God in our lives. When you read the book of Acts, doesn't it feel like anything could happen at any moment? That's what we want when we gather. If Sundays are just singing and listening to a sermon, let me tell you guys something. I will not last in this job. That doesn't interest me at all. That is a boring life that I think I would much sooner do something else. And I'm sure most of you would too. And this is not about having an experience that matches up to everyone else's experience around you, but it's about pursuing Jesus. It's about pursuing the intimacy with the Father. It's about pursuing the right power to live from. I love how John Piper writes about it. He says, what we should seek, and this applies to all Christians, is that God would pour out his spirit upon us so completely that we are filled with joy, victorious over sin, and bold to witness. And the, ways he brings, and the ways he brings us to that fullness are probably as varied as people are. It may come in a tumultuous experience of ecstasy and tongues. It may come through a tumultuous experience of ecstasy and no tongues. It may come through a crisis of suffering when you abandon yourself totally to God. Or it may come gradually through a steady diet of God's word and prayer and fellowship and worship and service. However it comes, our first experience of the fullness of the Spirit is only the beginning of a lifelong battle to stay filled with the Spirit. Let me repeat that last sentence one more time. However it comes, our first experience of the fullness of the Spirit is only the beginning of a lifelong battle to stay filled with the Spirit. And so when I look across this room, I, I know there's no doubt in my mind that there are varying, there are as many different experiences and expressions of the Spirit's power as there are people here. There are probably people here who have never experienced 
anything close to what we read about in Scripture. There may be people in here who are not Christians, and you're like, what is this weird club? Where, what have I found myself in the middle of this morning? There are some raving Pentecostals in the room who want nothing more than to dance and moan and shout and sing uh, and are just wait, dying for me to quit talking so we can do that. And here's the thing I think is on offer for each one of us. Do you want more? Do you want more? Perhaps at some point in your life, you received a, 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 a filling of the Holy Spirit of some kind, maybe at a youth camp decades ago. And since then, you've found yourself just sort of living a very typical, normal American life. And there lingers somewhere under the surface a longing for more, this longing that you have tried to stuff down with a thousand less, lesser pleasures. And you've misinterpreted that longing for more as really like a need for that next house, that next job promotion, that perfect spouse, those, those children, getting those children out of the house, whatever it is that you're longing for. And at the base of that longing, none of those things will be able, be able to satisfy because really what that longing for is more of what you were created to indulge and feast on, which is the presence of God, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps you have somewhere lingering in the, the back of your mind this like, there's got to be more to life than this. I've been successful in all of these ways. I've done the right things. I've been a part of the right things. I've saved for the right retirement. And yet there just feels this kind of emptiness under the surface. It's because the purpose for which you were called and created is what we read Jesus declaring in Luke chapter 4. To proclaim the good news to the poor the recovery of sight to the blind, liberty for the captives, and the year of the Lord's favor. He's created you for that. And I have good news. It doesn't matter how old you are, where you're at in life, how much of your life you feel like you have squandered. The invitation for you this morning is be filled with the Spirit. Wait for this, the promise, the gift that the, that the Father has on offer. One of the things I was meditating on, I'm going off script and over time, so I'm sorry, everybody. One of the things I was meditating on this morning as I was praying for our time together is, I, is just the reminder that there's really only one thing that Jesus says that God, that is like fully God's will, and that's giving the Holy Spirit to those who ask. He says, parents, you love to give good gifts to your kids. Parents, you have this like deep affection for your own children. And when they ask you for something, you want to give them what they want. And he says, even if you are an evil parent, even you who love your kids so imperfectly that it's evil compared to how much God loves us, if you like to do that, how much more does the Father love to pour out his spirit on those who ask? And so this morning, do you want more? I'm gonna invite Josh to come on up. We're gonna take, we're gonna take some time to... Um, to worship as we kind of prepare our hearts for whatever the Spirit has next. Um, when we do ministry time, we often just kind of wait in quiet, and it's a really sweet time where we're just waiting for the Holy Spirit to speak, and that's great. Um, I, want, I want to do things a little bit different this morning. I think that what God is inviting us to right now is not to just wait for something to happen to us, I think that he wants us to initiate a response. Um, I hate making 
asking for altar calls, because what if nobody comes? <laughs> is, that too, is that too transparent? <laughs> um, but we did this a few weeks ago where I said, if you have a mustard seed worth of desire, if you feel like the embers of your heart are like just barely glowing and flickering and the flame seems like it has gone out, I want to invite you to, to come forward in response. It's like a step saying, God, I don't know what you have for me, but I know I want to avail myself in a very intentional way. I don't want to sit back coolly. I want to I want to obey and come forward. So as we sing, if you just want to avail yourself to whatever the Spirit is doing this morning, I want to invite you to come to the front and worship. And it might be weird, but I think it's going to be good. Does that sound okay? So will you stand with me?